My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by James Fulos. He is the executive editor at The American Mind. He is the author of The Art of Being Free, and he's also a contributing editor at American Affairs and a fellow at the Center of the Study of Digital Life. Um, welcome, welcome, James. Hi, Alex. How are you? Good, very good. Um, hopefully, I haven't startled you too early in the day. My time zone is a bit is a bit tricky. Uh, being startled early in the day is Lindy, I've been told, so I think we'll be good. Exactly. Being being awoken by wild beasts, that's that's how our ancestors used to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I've, uh, I've, I've chatted to um, a few diagnosticians of the current moment on this podcast. I've had uh, Jeff Schollenberger on, and I've had quite a few people who have got interesting hypotheses about the, the situation that we're in. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, this is this is an, a kind of a, a fever pitch culturally, I feel, uh, you know, you kind of have this this woke movement that's been been gripping the conversation, the culture wars, all of this. Um, I'm curious where you um, what what your feeling is like, what what was the prime mover here? Like what what caused this situation? Uh, what would cause us to, to land in this point where, you know, we're essentially to, you know, maybe two factions, but probably, you know, myriad factions all kind of fighting against each other in this weird battle, battleground of, of the digital space. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you see uh, as, um, yeah, I don't know if causal, but at least, you know, what, what led to this? Well, so one thing that, um, that we at the Claremont Institute spend a lot of time thinking about is regimes, uh, regime forms, different regimes, uh, how they are structured, what sort of logic they entail, um, and then particularly applied to the United States of America, sort of, you know, obviously there was the regime of the founding, and then arguably there was another sort of regime after the Civil War, uh, and then perhaps a couple more regimes after that. Um, increasingly, uh, I'm apt to see uh, the, the, let's call it just 1945 as a year of founding in America, a sort of refounding. Um, the reality being that Europe's encounter with electricity was pretty much a disaster. Um, electricity is invented. It's all very exciting. Paris has street lamps at night. Uh, people can live at night as they did during the day. Uh, and, you know, it, it wasn't simply that electricity arrived in Europe with, with such explosive effect, although it certainly did uh, give rise, especially in England, to all forms of occultism, England and Germany. Uh, and those things, you know, really were, were dragon's teeth that, that, grew into, uh, that grew into a couple of, of world wars. Um, so they're, they're complex factors at work, but the, the wrenching change in communications media uh, resulted in disaster for Europe, and it resulted in a massive disenchantment of Christianity. Uh, and in the wake of that collapse, um, of course, many Europeans uh, fled the continent and came to America and infused America with 
um, you know, from the high end of sort of the most brilliant of Europe's scholars and scientists to the low end of, you know, Europe's most enterprising criminals. You know, they all came to the U.S. Um, and really transformed America uh, from, you know, from from Leo Strauss down to Don Corleone. Um, and the nature of that transformation um, is one that kept uh, the the spirit of the West going in America um, in a way that was in some sense less American than, than previously. Of course, you get a big influx of foreigners. It changes the character of people, changes the character of the regime. Uh, so after World War II, um, Europe it has had this shattering experience of losing its faith in Christianity. Uh, and although America is receiving large numbers of Europeans whose faith has been shattered in that way, uh, American, you know, sort of native American Christianity is still going quite strong. Um, electricity does not uh, disenchant much of anything in America. In fact, much to the contrary, there's this explosion of the imagination industry and the fantasy industrial complex, you know, from Disney to, to PR to, you know, uh, Madison Avenue, um, political spin doctors, uh, everything in America is all about whoever can, can image their imaginings uh, in, in the fastest and most uh, arresting way and broadcast those out to the most people. Well, those people are going to be the ruling class. And so it was. Um, that opened up a sort of rival culture to the old American Christian culture, uh, but it didn't quite destroy it. Um, and so here we are at this moment where we've got, uh, we've got a Western world that is divided between sort of post-Christians and fantasists and Christians, and then digital technology comes along. And what does digital do? Well, it's actually starting to disenchant the fantasy industrial complex. Suddenly we have machines that are so powerful in their ability to recollect, to recall, to record, um, that they have more authority and more reach and more sort of godlike power than the human imagination. Um, and so that transformation is one that is beginning to have in America the same kind of shattering effect that the disenchantment of Christianity had in Europe. Suddenly, all of the Americans from the ruling class on down who are uh, invested or devoted to or dependent on the fantasy industrial complex are starting to realize that they need to replace that framework, that sort of dream it, if you can dream it, you can do it ethos of Walt Disney. They have to replace that with something. Um, otherwise, they're going to be rendered obsolete, like so many people realize every day on the internet. They're interchangeable, they're disposable. That's why cancellation works is because Ultimately, you know, we don't really need Dr. Seuss, really. You know, what has Dr. Seuss done for me lately? Well, I have some nostalgic memories with my kid. Yeah, I know. But, you know, the, there's there's this vast garbage dump that is forming on the Internet, and it's composed of pre-digital artifacts of the human imagination. It's, you like it or not, that's what's going on. Uh, and so the fantasists are now scrambling, I would say, to, to retcon their form of rule into a fundamentally religious one. Because it turns out that the mastery of these robots, of these digital machines, throws us back on ultimate questions about what it means to be a human being and why we should even bother suffering and struggling along as humans. Questions of the sort that Nietzsche posed during uh, Europe's disenchantment 
Um, but they were specifically organized around sort of life after Christianity. And in the U.S., it's just a different cultural configuration. But Americans, you know, are who are dependent on on the life of the imagination and the economics of the imagination are really struggling right now and, and rushing quickly to find a sort of new religious framework that they can use to maintain their power and their identity. So it's a busy, complicated, fragmented scene. Um, my, you know, one, one th catchphrase that I think sums things up pretty well is that digital retrieves medieval patterns of thought and sensibilities. Um, and that's just going to be a more, you know, a more uh, uh, distributed and uh, pluralist and uh, fragmented and overlapping kind of power structure than what we're used to. Uh, and that's a big challenge for the American regime because, you know, up until the uh, the triumph of the internet that we created, thinking that it was going to just complete our our power structure around the world. Uh, the U.S. has been very very concentrated and well organized, sort of bureaucratically, very top down, um, and all the currents of our time now cut against that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a, kind of a, a fascinating perspective on you know why this movement is so religious because it is almost you know explicitly religious and to me it, it looks a bit like you know oh they're, they're just overplaying their hand you know by making it so religious but you seem well, they, to they say have that to do this. They, have to, they have to do it i mean if you don't have a religion how can you even attempt to answer these questions about who are we in a world where basically invisible omnipotent machines that are always awake and are always doing things and do things regardless of whether or not we want them to. And meanwhile, we're stuck in these bodies. You know, many people are not, do not particularly uh, love what they see in the mirror when they wake up every day and look into it. Um, and many people don't like, you know, what's on the inside either. There's a lot of self-loathing going around and uh, it's, it's intensified by this, this envy that we feel toward these all-powerful, omnipotent machines that we've created that are more like angels or demons or aliens than they are like human beings. It's an alien invasion of planet Earth. The only thing that is capable of wrapping its arms around the world today is these digital machines. It's not any human idea. It's not any human artifact. This is a big, big challenge to our, our self-esteem, to our pride in our humanity, and, you know, in a religious key to the idea that... <clears throat> You know, warts and all, being human is good news. Being human is a gift. We've been given a gift of our humanity, and we should see it as a good gift from a good creator. Uh, the triumph of the bots throws all that into question in a new way, and modern and postmodern answers to the questions of how to like how to live, how to make it through your day, those are not responsive to this new predicament that we are in, in the way people hope that they are. And so it is a scramble. And you know, if if you don't have a religious framework, um, then you're going to struggle to even explain what's going on and you're going to struggle to convince people uh, that you have the answers to sort of how and why they should orient themselves in a certain way to the barrage of everyday life. Mm. Yeah, what, what strikes me about this new religious framework, because you, you said before, essentially, you know, the the good thing about Christianity is that it kind of has this dispositive vision of humanity baked in, even though it is fallen, you know, there, there's still hope. There's essentially, the, the hope is the, the point. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, the, the defining characteristics of this new religion is that it's essentially anti-human, 
there are many people in, you know, in woke circles that see an ideal world as one devoid of humans, as one, you know, where, where nature can come back and, and, you know, reclaim its territory. Nature is healing. You know, why should you have babies if you can just, you know, get connected to some sensors and have some fun in the pod until you expire? Uh, it's the idea that, you know, fun is good, humans are okay, but the, the lack of humans is better. Um, I feel to me, to me, it feels like that's, that's, um, that's a problem for this religion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. I don't know. To me, it's, it's not a good selling point. That's, well, that's think, essentially a big turnoff. <laughs> I think it's a turnoff, but you know, we, this is, this is, it's complicated because the, the last time that we had in the West, a, a social superstructure that was formed decisively by a scribal mode of communications was the medieval age. Uh, the, the ruling form of communications was, uh, was, was taking place in the scriptorium. And the people in the scriptorium were the ones who were the masters of knowledge and information and communication. That was, that was the ruling intellectual class. Uh, today, that role is being, uh, is being played by robots, by machines. It's automated. The automated scriptorium is, is what rules. And so the, the affront to human pride that uh, that was broadly felt in the Middle Ages um, was one that led toward a Christian ethic of asceticism. Um, you know, you see this everywhere from the Desert Fathers straight through to you know Machiavelli complaining that Italy had become you know a shithole country because too many people were like walking the streets, whipping themselves, and wearing hair shirts, and living off in moldering castles and co copying down old texts. And, you know, Machiavelli had a point, of course, but, but asceticism in the Middle Ages was less, I would say, of a threat to, to, uh, to human flourishing and to Christianity than it is today. Like, physical asceticism weakens our recognition of the gift of our humanity in a world where life is suffused with the blinding, overpowering light of an infinite number of alien and angel-like machines. Like we need to have a theology of the body that understands that physical health and vitality is a powerful proof to us that our given humanity is in fact a gift and that it is even better to be human than it is to be a bot. Because you're right that, you know, the woke religion is showing signs of being a religion in its transhumanism, in its anti-humanism and its hope to transcend the human because it sees the human as a curse. It sees being human as ultimately bad news. And despite, you know, th these, these struggles on the left to determine what the politics of the body is, the prevailing one is to completely spiritualize race, to treat the body as at best a puppet that should be mutilated and man manipulated freely by the divine spirit that's contained within. And the whole logic of freedom and flourishing is one of shattering the control uh, of the, the prison of the natural body 
so that the the god inside can break free and run amok. Um, and the way in which that can be institutionalized today is through digital machines. And I think, you know, the Wokies are way ahead of anyone on the right in recognizing that the only way to assert our control over our machines is through religion, even though their objective is ultimately to destroy our humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's it's very it's a very startling vision. But um, in in terms of you know the 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 woke religion, I think what what strikes me about their vision is that it's just. It, it doesn't really match with reality, like the, the the concept of you know the homunculus behind the eyes pulling the pulling the strings, you know, um, you know con- constructing life, you know, one rational decision after another. Um, it it just doesn't pan out in reality because that's it's just it's just a faulty representation of what it means to be human, and you can see this in you know cratering mental health, you know, physical decay, you know, people just being bloated, you know, versions of, of, you know, humanoids, you know, careening past each other uh, in a daze. Like it's, it's just physically unsustainable to be part of this religion and take it seriously. So I feel like that's, you know, that's a little bit of an Achilles heel. I don't know. <laughs> feels to me. It is a race against the clock to establish a regime that can perpetuate itself and control the world despite the sort of physical decay of the, the people uh, working the levers. I think that's right. Um, one index of how fragmented things are going to get is that, you know, woke religion is Gnostic and Gnosticism does have, have you know, it is a Christian heresy. This goes, you know, this goes way back to the early Middle Ages and to, you know, Polysians coming out of Asia Minor and then Bogomils spreading through Bulgaria and going through the Balkans, um, crossing over into Italy, becoming Cathars. And then you have, you know, you have a full-blown religious war. You have the Albigensian Crusade and you have to, you know, lock the citizens of Carcassonne in their walled city and torch it. I, I think they allowed them to march out of the city naked before massacring. I mean, really, really intensely punitive conflict in order to stamp out the Gnostic heresy in the Middle Ages. Uh, and so, you know, Christianity is in no sense pure um, when it comes to sorting through these challenges. And every denomination of Christianity has a vulnerability to Gnosticism and therefore to woke Gnosticism. You've got cosmists in Russia who are, you know, moving, trying to move Orthodox theology in this direction. Um, You know, obviously Catholics are embroiled in a a very intense debate over whether Pope Francis is leading the church in a heretical direction. Um, Protestants, you know, don't get me started. I mean, the scene there is is quite grim. And so, uh, so the transhumanist temptation that is causing so many people to gravitate to wokeness is also posing a challenge for the rationalist atheists. You know, they thought that they had the monopoly on transhumanism. And in fact, they don't. 
And so, you know, I do feel a little pity. I mean, I feel some pity for, for all humans in this way, but the poor rationalist transhumanists, you know, their, their precious creation is being culturally appropriated by the Wokies and they're seeing it being turned into a religion. And it is, is going to be a messy conflict with a messy resolution. And it is, you know, it's a jump ball for power. It's not clear who's going to win and who's going to lose or how fast this is all going to unfold. People are desperate for answers. They want to be told what to do. They want to be led. They're looking around for leaders and they're hard to find. It, it seems to me like there's there's a new class of leaders. There's a new, essentially, it's part of the, the the kind of rationalist transhumanist tech, you know, tech overlord cast. Um, you see these, you know, the, the, the smart VCs, the, the modern philosophers, the the people who, you know, the, they're they're kind of calculatedly not woke. At least you're not talking about it, and in secret, they're actually quite not woke because it's, it's an incoherent ideology. Um, but they are transhumanists. Like there's like uh, Balaji and, you know, Naval and people like this. And to me, what characterizes these people is that beside their, you know, their, their gain, the gains in popularity they're making every day is um, how, how much hubris there is behind this position. Like they're, you know, they're essentially not saying not only is there a homunculus behind my eyes, you know, I can be your homunculus and be, be the homunculus who's going to control, you know, complex interrelated systems at scale for millions, maybe billions of people. We'll see. We'll see what the network externalities look like for this new product. Um, I don't know. To me, this in a way, just because of the, the scale at, at which they're thinking, this is probably the, the scariest type of counter elite to me, though, obviously they have qualities. They're smarter people. They're very smart, but I don't think they're as smart as they think they are. So I don't know. What's, what's your gauge on, on this new um, stratum of leaders? Um, I can be your homunculus, baby. I can take away your pain. I can make you live forever. Um, <laughs> this is like pretty inside baseball, but I think there's no escape from this. I mean... The, the digital reworking of the world is one that brings feudal relations back. And a lot of people on the right are really uncomfortable with that prospect and it's understandable why, but you know, feudalism is not primarily an economic system. Uh, it's primarily like a, a system of social survival where people say, okay, I don't have any capital. Uh, I don't have any like connections, you know, but what I can do is I can pledge on my honor to defend you and to follow you and to uh, work for you. And the feudal Lord goes, okay, great. And you know, and my end of the bargain is I pledge to protect you and to um, give you what you need to sustain human life. Um, <laughs> that's what's coming in a world where capitalism is, has been turned into, you know, into financial financialized like debt bondage. For many people, uh, and where you know communism doesn't doesn't really work, I, you know China is a testament to this. Um, and so, what comes back is is not a UBI, not a universal basic control that spreads over the entire world and is orchestrated through a concentrated financial system run on fiat currency, uh, but you know, uh, but but local feudal income. That's LFI. If I could get it to, down to LFG, that would be really exciting. Um, so 
transhumanists out there who are encouraging us to hasten the day when we are all on like transhumanist welfare. I don't find that to be very exciting, but I do think that there is a, a salutary ferment on the side of, of what Balaji calls technological progressives. I mean, I know Balaji and we've haggled over this. I mean, technological change to human biology is already here. It's, it's coming. There's going to be more of it. There isn't going to be, um, there isn't going to be one set of rules and regulations for how biotechnology works and what it can do. Um, I think there will be a lot of mistakes and a lot of failed experiments and sort of horrific homunculi dying in the lab. Um, but making the argument that, hey, wouldn't it be better if, you know, people died at age 120 instead of age 100 or like we reduced the period, the, the share of human life that's just sort of this sad senescent condition. Like those arguments have always been around. Um, people in the old testament lived for centuries uh it's even though it's really like a big difference qualitatively from where we are today it's not like a difference in kind it's not like hearkening unto the alien it's not necessarily dehumanizing and so you know i think that if you look at a guy like like dryden brown who's running praxis with uh some other guys um his his catchphrase and I say that with all the love in my heart that I have, <clears throat> is trad humanism. Um, and, you know, the, the thought there is like humanity, our humanity is a tradition worth preserving. Like our humanity is a gift. It's very capacious. Human beings can do many things. Like we have many capabilities. We can extend our capabilities through technology and we can do it in a really robust and exciting way without having to sacrifice or mutilate our humanity. And I find that to be quite powerful. And I think that many people, when presented with the choice between a kind of superhumanism and a transhumanism or posthumanism, would immediately latch on to the superhumanism. Uh, even if you look at like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or whatever, there are not that many posthumans. And what ones there are are more or less scary figures. But the superhumans are people that we can relate to, they're recognizably human. Um, and so, you know, I think as events unfold here, um, it's going to become clearer that superhumanism has, to be sure, serious risks. Uh, it risks imbuing us with, you know, with sinful pride, with pride in the damaging and dangerous uh, sense, the kind that comes before a huge fall. Uh, you know, insert your, like, your tarot card of, of the tower or your, like, reference to the, the Tower of Babel here. Um, whereas it's going to become more clear that, that the, the transhumanist temptation is a temptation precisely because it offers us uh, the prospect of becoming something better than being human, which can only be achieved by destroying the human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think my, my resistance to any form of uh, add your favorite prefix and humanism uh, is that, you know, even, even making the decision of, okay, you know, what, what constitutes an addition to humanity that would just 
fit into the box of superhuman. You know, you talked about life extension. You could say, you know, IVF and, you know, other, you know, fertility technologies and all this type of stuff is essentially just kind of an addition, just essentially it's just a helper. Um, but, you know, further down the line, now we're finding out that, you know, IVF isn't isn't an incontrovertible good there, there are issues, there's a huge mutational load that these children inherit. You know, these are essentially infertile people that are made magically fertile by technology, but they're not made actually fertile. They're just made, you know, it, it, it makes you have a baby. Uh, obviously, this is this is still kind of in, you know, it's, it's being researched, it's interesting. Not many people are talking about it, but this is just one, one sub-fraction of a fraction of, of something that's, you know, an incontrovertible benefit, you know, just making people have babies. It's great. You know, I'm all for the babies. Uh, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, um, there are uh, downstream effects, there are second, third, fourth, fifth order effects that could be huge, you know, even even our reduction of um, infant mortality, which is essentially one of the one of the greatest inventions that, you know, the, the West has made medically, it's, it's the thing that actually pushes our, our average, you know, age up more than more than um, more than anything else. Uh, but it's it's also not un- incontrovertible. There's there a lot of a lot of issues with children who kind of survive that. So there's there's a lot of little things like that that we're just kind of starting to grasp. Um, that you know are are it's kind of super superhuman, but it also is, is laden with um, with things that wouldn't necessarily fit in the precautionary principle. So I don't know. That's kind of to me. It feels like okay, who who makes the decision here? <laughs> what's what's the what's the useful technology and what's just you know nuts? Well, yes, who makes the decision is going to be important. And you know, if I'm right that there's no human institution or organization that can wrap its arms around the world anymore because that has been surrendered to the bots, then you know there are going to be rival civilization states with rival rules and regulations and and moral codes surrounding biotechnology. Um, and, you know, I think you're definitely right. You know, one of the risks of superhuman technology is that in many cases, you can only access a superhuman gain in one area by accepting a subhuman loss in another area. Um, at the same time, you know, like it's clear <laughs> that technology right now, broadly understood, is reducing people wholesale in some ways to a subhuman state like the sperm count is plummeting and like women are being convinced wholesale to not try to have children until the you know the least fortuitous but moment in their biological lifespan and the attempt to uh to balance out this reduction to subhuman conditions through technology is a manifest failure i mean we see it we see it failing every day. Like pornography is not a viable technological substitute for reproductive sex at your biological peak. It just isn't. And it, you know, this isn't particularly controversial, but if you start taking seriously the implications of this non-controversial statement, people start losing their minds. You know, why is that? That's something interesting that, that we can talk about. Um, the key is to look upon, I mean, Marshall McLuhan calls all technological tools extensions of man. And the point of an extension of the human being and the human body and mind and soul is to supplement our capabilities, not to supplant them. 
You know, we, we want to be able to, you know, we shouldn't be cutting off our hands or our noses or our genitalia to spite our faces culturally. Uh, and because of this envy that we feel toward these seemingly omnipotent and invisible bots that are pure spirit liberated from all human form, we are tempted to mutilate ourselves, to take revenge on our bodies in all of their imperfection and mortality. And we see that the costs are massive and we see that mass psychosis is setting in, you know, sitting members of Congress, like telling the American people that, you know, when an eight-year-old wants to cut their penis off, that this is good and must be respected and must become, you know, a centerpiece of justice in the new regime. Like, it's not just like, as the stock catchphrase says, it will get weirder. It will get more psychotic. People are losing their psychological moorings. And it's happening because invisible omnipotent machines are taking over the world. And the only way that we're going to rectify the situation, even for small groups of people isolated in a sort of post-apocalyptic state, is by uh, embracing a theology uh, that sees our human identity as one in which the body and the soul are inextricable from one another, you know, until judgment day, whenever that may be, you know, a time which no human and no machine can or will ever know. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it increasingly strikes me that this doesn't seem likely without a framework either that is exactly Christianity or very, very much like Christianity, but nothing, nothing really comes, comes close to it. Um, I mean, my background is uh, very much a, a virulent militant atheist and, you know, new old, whatever. Um, but I mean, now, now in my old age, I'm, I'm kind of coming around to the idea that, you know, just, in, just in practical terms, in the most practical way, just at, at a, the level of coordination and uh, the level of just keeping a society, you know, <laughs> you know, just existing, uh, there's not really any any way around it. Um, I mean, we're we're going to have a religion anyway. We have a religion anyway. We have competing religions anyway. But um, none of the competing religions that are coming up serve any of the of the useful functions that Christianity has. I mean, do you see um, kind of a, a revival of, of Christianity or will it be weird uh, heresies uh, all the way down? Oh, it's, I mean, I think it's going to be all of the above until further notice. You know, I think that every denomination has, has inner fractures and that Christianity as a whole has inner fractures. Uh, and then you sort of like post, post-Christian adjacent creeds uh you know not just wokeness i mean one of the reasons why silicon valley has become a focus of hate and a scapegoat uh is that both christians and woke post-christians who are building their gnostic heresy on top of christian categories of thought look at silicon valley and they see a, a culture of people who wanted to keep the best of religion while throwing away what they thought of as the worst of religion. And the, you know, I think the most powerful uh, criticism of Silicon Valley is one that says, 
I'm sorry guys, but you can't like have your cake and eat it too and try to found a society on this kind of like spiritualism, you know, like spiritualism is not a stable foundation in a digital age. It has to be a religious foundation. Um, and trying to like convince people that like, well, you know, really the way that you should organize your life is by feeling optimistic about technology and feeling optimistic about like people connecting and feeling good and like sharing the things they love the most, you know, that kind of like Facebookism um, is <laughs> in like 20 years ago, that seemed logical and intuitive and right. Because 20 years ago, we didn't live in a digital world. The people who created these machines were formed by the previous technology. They weren't formed by digital technology. They were creating digital technology. And so what was forming them was this kind of like televisual ethos where, you know, I mean, it's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, like pure imagination. You know, it's like, like SpongeBob SquarePants, like having the rainbow come out of his hands when he goes, imagination. It's like John Lennon singing about, imagine there's no, you know, no countries, no religion, um, nothing to kill, nothing to die for. Um, it's easy if you try, uh, you know, Walt Disney, we already talked about, Disney company still refers to its people as Imagineers. Um, Norman Vincent Peale, power positive thinking. Like this was all like the, the source of human excellence in the post-war world. It was open the floodgates of imagination. If you can dream it, you can do it. Follow your passion, chase your dreams. That is what powered the world. It was the most powerful force in the world. And it worked pretty well because there was no more powerful technology to undermine all of those cultural premises. And so, you know, so you have Steve Jobs and all the rest of these guys, and it's like, think different and like the Dalai Lama and like this iconography of imagination. Um, and so the, <laughs> the assumption, which was fairly reasonable at the time, even though it was also batshit insane, coming out of the Imagineers of the West was if we build our machines and we like our machines and we're good people, then the machines are going to be good and they're going to be our friends and they're going to do what we tell them to and there aren't going to be any unintended consequences. This is like our capstone achievement. We're going to complete the course on utopia. And that's what the world is going to be. Communism was defeated. We have no other rivals. Religion is just sort of fading away. And it's going to be one global uh, village or global theater, you know, which was the update to Global Village that, that McLuhan talked about. Um, it all seemed very reasonable, very rational, and very ethical. And what happened, of course, was, was not that. Um, what happened was, uh, oh, no, like we invented these machines and now we have Donald Trump. And rather than thinking about how it is that creating new forms of media, new technological uh, controls and, and forms of communications works over our inner and outer worlds, instead of thinking on that level, um, the established class thought, oh, well, the, the technology is actually bad because it allows the worst people to talk to each other and to bring to drag ancient hatreds back into utopia. And so why are we here? Well, it's because greedy technologists hacked people's minds and incentivized them to go down these rabbit holes and to stop reading the news and to start trusting like, you know, bong whore 420 or whatever. Um, 
And so now we have like a, a jihad against misinformation, which is simply, you know, uh, unofficial information. That's the wrong lesson to learn. You know, you've got, I mean, people I respect, you know, they're like, oh, these poor, like poor America, like uh, insurrectionists filled with their heads filled with fantasies, uh, tried to destroy the American regime. This is really scary. And it's like, I'm sorry, if you think there was an actual insurrection on the 6th of January, you are suffering from a delusion. You are suffering from a fantasy. Yeah, there's a power vacuum in America right now, still to this very day. You go to Washington, D.C., you look at this, you know, this this crippled, weak, sclerotic regime hiding behind concertina wire and chain link fences as like fat National Guards men and women like lay around reading Alistair. I mean, things are bad. This is a weakened regime. And the idea that the only, you know, that that everyone must unite behind this this weak terminal regime to uh, to create a domestic intelligence force and uh, conduct a, a, glo a global war on domestic terror. This is craziness. It is it is not just like ideologically bad. It is a fundamentally mistaken uh, understanding of the relationship between the technology that we created and our psychological and, and social sociological response to it. Uh, what we need to be thinking about is not how to prop up the sclerotic regime, but how to, you know, once again, sort of like re-ground the country that we have um, on a footing that is going to enable us to survive the digital transformation. Now, the Wokies have an answer to this. They say, well, right, this is easy. So what we need is we need a new priestly class of uh, borderline, you know, transhumanist people um, to program the bots to make sure that the bots worship our religion. So the Wokies are like, the only way that we're making it out, making it out of this alive is, you know, for, <laughs> for people who have cut their penises off and replaced them with separating gashes that never heal. And they have to like jam foreign objects in there to keep the hole open. And they smell like gangrene. You know, this is the kind of person who needs to catechize all of our bots into their transhumanist religion. And that's the only way that we're going to make it through the digital transition. Well, they're right that ultimately someone's got to catechize the bots or else the bots are going to be out of control and they're going to be doing unintelligible things. They're going to be black boxes that we don't understand. And we're going to feel like we have to worship that. And so if we don't want to worship the bots, we got to make the bots worship our God. And there needs to be an alternative to the woke answer here because you know, I don't think that I'm alone in suggesting that full luxury automated wokeness is going to make people insane and turn them into monsters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's already in progress, uh, at least, you know, for, for the people who are, who are, who are buying in uh, wholesale on, on this end. Um, I'm, I'm curious what your vision is for the alternatives, because the, the woke religion is quite, it's, it's out there. It's, it's got its own kind of coherence. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's got its proponents. It's very, very vocal. Uh, what should the, uh, you know, what should our religion, what should our programming for the bots look like? Um, would it be essentially just, you know, a return trad, you know, you know, putting, putting our foot down and saying, no, where we have to we have to drive back, guys, or will it have to be a complete reimagination of um, of essentially Christianity? 
This is a very difficult question specifically for America. And insofar as other countries have been Americanized, it's a very difficult question for them as well. Um, I would go so far as to say that it is the most difficult they question. They have. And the most urgent question. Uh, you know, you don't have to be Curtis Yarvin to go, uh, the U.S. and Albania seem like they're now kind of the same country, just different sizes and different power differentials. Um, because it's true just generally that there are no shortcuts to, uh, to, to building personal or cultural wisdom. Uh, there are no shortcuts to utopia. Um, heaven is not a place on earth. And in America, what that means is it's, you know, you're not going to just, just make America a Catholic monarchy. It's not going to happen. Um, it's not going to happen by taking over the bureaucracy. It's not going to happen by any means. The only way that it could happen is by religious war. Regardless of what media has been dominant, regardless of what technological era we've been in, all the way from, from Homeric times to present, religious war has been the Western way of war. Whether it's you know city-states, and every city-state has its own god or gods, um, or you know the Crusades, uh, the wars of Christian uh, heresy, uh, the Reformation, um, the American Civil War, uh, the, the wars of de-Christianization in Europe, the World Wars, they're all religious wars. And, you know, if you are really <laughs> putting your money on like, well, there's going to be a huge religious war and like my faction is going to win and then everything's going to be perfect. I would invite someone with that attitude to reconsider their position. Um, that said, you know, like these conflicts are real. They're going to have to be sorted out one way or the other. Uh, and in America, there isn't going to be one form of Christianity. Uh, the, the homegrown American sect of Christianity is Mormonism. And <laughs> to many Christians, that's like not real Christianity. And so, you know, what are you going to do? To banish the Mormons? I mean, it's, it's going to be difficult for people to accept in America that the only way to keep the country whole, even in a world of real subsidiarity, is to accept the fact that some of your fellow citizens are, from your standpoint, crazy people, nutcases, hopelessly lost, confused freaks. Um, so how do you hold a country together uh, in a world where you have to accept this? Um, that, I think, is a kind of religious discipline all on its own. You have to do the hard work, regardless of what your, your denomination is or what your religion is. Uh, you gotta, you know, you gotta fill your churches with bodies. <laughs> That's for starters. You gotta make sure that that family bloodlines continue within your religion. You gotta proselytize. You gotta evangelize. Um, you gotta you fill the monasteries. You know, you have to build out the institutional structure of your religion, brick by brick and person by person. And you gotta do it in a strong and sound way. Now, you know, for for me that. I can understand very well why uh, uh, members in good standing of sacramental denominations insist upon like apostolic authority as a way to help ensure the integrity of their faith. I can also understand why Protestantism is so American and why 
it is so difficult to stop Americans from being Protestant. Um, these things aren't going to be resolved easily. And you had Patrick Deneen on recently. Uh, he was on my dissertation committee. I've known him for a long time. I have much respect for, for Patrick. Um, you know, his assessment of the future prospects for liberalism is very much different from say that of, of Josh Mitchell, who's a, a Washington fellow at the Claremont Institute, uh, uh, Center for the American Way of Life. He was also on my committee. He was my, my committee chair. Um, so, you know, I've, I've seen these uh, debates on the right play out at the highest level among the people who are taking it the most seriously. And uh, there is not a, a single consensus and there is not going to be. Um, and so even if, you know, establishment conservative Inc quote unquote fusionism is dead, there are still going to have to be just as a reality of, of the world that we're in and, and the regime that we need to build, there will have to be, uh, some kind of ecumenical coalition among the different, uh, denominations on the right. Um, it's, you know, it's a very fluid situation. I wouldn't be surprised if, if new churches came into being and other ones died off over the next 20 years. Um, but if, if America wants a good shot at surviving the digital transition, I think it is helpful for Americans to realize that the liberal arts, a liberal education was originally devised uh, during the Middle Ages as a way to give people with leisure access to the classical wisdom they needed to be healthy and productive and not go insane. And so liberalism in that sense, going back to the classical trivium, is something that has been with us always. You know, it's something that has has proven itself as a way to avoid insanity, regardless of our tech technological situation uh, and regardless of the turmoil that we encounter in our political and social life. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to critics of liberalism. They struggled in obscurity with small audiences until digital came along and suddenly everyone went, whoa, wait a minute, you're right. Like the old ways don't work anymore. At the same time, liberalism is older than it seems, and contemporary liberals, modern liberals, uh, do not have an, a monopoly on the wisdom of the ages that has come down to us through through liberal means. Mm. Yeah, um, I feel like you know the I'm, I'm, I'm quite connected to a lot of the the, the new criticism on, on liberalism, and I I probably agree more with the name than than most people nowadays. Um, but I, I think the, the issue that I see with kind of overlapping liberalism and technology is that there seems to be some kind of re, self-reinforcing cycles in, in this. So technology seems to add a lot more fragility to the liberalism of old. You know, it's essentially kind of enforces its own contradictions and it kind of weaponizes it against itself. It's kind of, to me, it feels like, you know, the, the, the liberal conception of the individual, um, you know, in the, in the John Stuart Mill vein is 
is kind of ratcheted up to 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 the crazy making point uh, because of technology. So you have all of these um, all of these liberatory technology, all of these disintermediating things, all of these things that you know uh, allow you to to detach yourself from the chains of tradition, from kin and clan, and all of this stuff. And now it's actually possible. Like two hundred years ago, it wouldn't have been possible to you know just be an individual, you know, this the separate uh, pod human, and you know never never talk to your mother again never communicate to another person like i feel you know technology actually has made that flavor of liberalism this to me very noxious flavor of liberalism finally possible uh and in a way it's kind of the culmination of it and it's it's only kind of spiraling out in, in that direction so um i don't know <laughs> i guess it, like you said there, there are different forms of liberalism different um different conceptions of it. i mean what what type of liberalism do you see as you know being being virtuous and and, and um you know, having value in, in the new in the new regime. Well, not the liberalism of John Stuart Mill, that's for sure. Uh, utilitarian liberalism, I think, is is ultimately a menace, just because it's mistaken about who we really are and how how we work. You know, um, <clears throat> it tries to mask those errors and compensate for them uh, by uh, imposing certain subhuman conditions on us. Uh, the liberalism of like a Benjamin Constant is a little bit better, um, but I, you know, Constant and, and his ilk, if I can use that horrible phrase, were quite certain that the spread of knowledge was going to spread enlightenment and and sweet mores. And that's not, that is, that is also just like a mistaken understanding. Um, I do think though that liberalism at its root since the very beginning has been about how to be healthy uh, when you have leisure, how to use your leisure in a way that conduces to your well-being, that of those around you, that of those you love, um, and ultimately that of the regime. Now, what's interesting here to me is that technology is today, I think, associated with leisure, in spite of the fact that many people work in the Amazon factory and they're reduced to the level of slaves. And that's kind of a way in which technology does not conduce to leisure. Like the main thrust of the technological vision, whether it is coming from from the atheists or the base transhumanists or the wokies or whatever, in every case, it really boils down to the idea that we are gaining the ability to create machines that can relieve us of the burden of toil. We can get to a world where nobody has to work and life will still be okay. And that's like an interesting wager, but technology is also bound up inextricably with speed and velocity. And the faster that technology moves, the less leisure we have. Technology forces the issue. It forces, it, it forces us to respond to it and to make choices, dramatic choices, about whether to accept it or reject it or fight it or run away from it. And liberalism at its best is an education into how to slow down time 
how to channel the inherent wonder that human beings feel, the wonder that is a gift of our humanity. How do you use that in a constructive and well-structured way? That is the teaching of liberalism. And at its worst, technology threatens that teaching and breaks it up and renders it inaccessible to us by, by hurrying us along and by denying us the opportunity to, to make, you know, to relieve ourselves from the burden of time. You know, it, it, the claim is that we're going to be relieved from the burden of work, but what about the burden of time? People want to be able to, to experience some disconnection from the imperatives of secular existence. And they want to, to see the invisible and they want to experience their life in communion with the giver of that life. And even in a world without work, where only our robotic slaves do all the work, uh, the leisure that we end up with is going to become a curse to us if technology is always rushing us away from the experience of wondering and wandering uh, and pulling us, you know, thrusting us again and again into the tyrannizing details of communications and control. So I think the best, the best hope for liberalism and for a liberal regime is one that recognizes the importance of protecting uh, the part of our humanity that wants a relief from the tyranny of time and the tyranny of making choices and ensures that people have room to uh, to learn how to use their leisure in the best way. Uh, that usage in a digital age is going to be, I think, dominated by, by religion, by religious observance, by the building of religious institutions and organizations, um, whether in the form of, you know, more monks, more bishops, more churches, more pastors, more nuns, all of it. Uh, but even still, you know, it's not going to be a world in which all people are equally devoted to religious discipline because the upper bound of religious discipline as a practice is going to go very high. Uh, we're going to see an age of, you know, I think the return of saints in our lifetimes, uh, the return of, you know, really charismatic and disciplined and holy people. Uh, that's not for everyone. It can't be for everyone. It wasn't in the Middle Ages. Society was divided into those who work, those who pray, and those who fight. And, you know, it, I wouldn't be surprised if those divisions reasserted themselves. Uh, but in, in America or in an Americanized country, uh, it's, you know, there's still going to be, uh, there's still going to be a deep-seated desire in the human breast for, uh, for, for, uh, ameliorating the rigor and structure of comprehensive, uh, comprehensive systems. And that is, I think, still where liberalism comes in, you know, for, for people who are going to be spending significant amount of time sitting with themselves and wanting to hear what can only be heard in silence. Uh, 
and wanting to take what they discover in that mode of life and put it to fruitful and productive use for themselves, for their families, for their communities. That is how work remains human in a digital age. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you you were um, talking before about kind of the, the the end of imagination, kind of the emptying of the of the world of imagination, and um, it, it does seem to me like technology is is you know is, is the is the biggest part of it, and it, it it's a loss. It's something that's you know. Um, through this emergent system's been been taken away from people. And my fear is that, you know, you can only do this up to a point, you know, where, where people are are actually um they've they've been vitiated, they've been they've been morphed and they've been they've been changed irre like irrevocably sorry. Irrevocably um from pregnancy brain <laughs> um from um from from the use of these technologies so that the tool itself becomes you know becomes you it, it it molds you to to a point um and why i say this is that you know the the level that technology has reached now is that you know it incorporates all of these you know visceral triggers all of these supernormal stimuli you know these are these are outsized things you know this is these are things that interact with you interact with your brain with your body with your biochemistry uh, at a level that was just not possible you know hundreds of years ago or in, on any scale and they do you know like we're saying about sperm counts you know about attention spans about all of these things they do they do make a mark and there's so many of them that you know, you you're not the same person as you would have been before using this. So uh, you're saying you know that uh, a liberal liberal arts education, you know, giving giving someone the tools, teaching them how to to master themselves is is uh, is the use of liberalism. But if you know what happens if they're not themselves, you know what happens if if these tools kind of take you over in a way. You know, you're you're not really you don't have all of your strength with you you don't have all of your uh, capacity and like you said not everyone will be able to to master themselves you know this has been the case historically as well but i feel like um there's kind of like a little event horizon that eats more and more people um with, with these supernormal stimuli that you know that kind of fall into the into the pod life they're just being dragged down because you know they, they might have been able to master themselves in other circumstances but because these forces are so strong with, with every wave, they're just being dragged into into the into the fray. It's it's easy to see how things could continue to go horribly wrong until a point of no return is reached. Um, the triumph of the machines raises this point in an uncanny way, and it can go one of two directions. So. Historically, the, there's a breaking point that even very downtrodden and low-level people experience when they are forced for too long to kneel at the feet of another human being. Uh, at a certain point, you know, you can beat up on a people for a long time and eventually they go, no, you know, our, our, our tyrant is not a god. Uh, I'd rather try to just kill the guy rather than endure this indignity any longer. Um, and so historically, you know, tyranny 
is bad, not just because it's bad, but because it's unstable. It's inherently, it's a ticking time bomb. Like eventually you will push even the most pathetic serfs to hit this sort of breaking point of their pride and, and overthrow the regime. And then usually, you know, it's not like things go back to happy land after that. It's just a new sort of set of miseries as they struggle to, to rebuild. Um, so one question is, uh, if the tyrant is a robot or if the tyrant sort of disappears behind a green curtain or into a magical hot air balloon or into the cloud and uh, every Karen who wants to talk to the manager has to talk to a, an AI, um, is that going to make people more or less likely to give up? Is it going to be more or less injurious to the pride of the oppressed person? to have to kneel before a bot instead of a fellow human being. I would like to think that people would find it more injurious to their pride. You expect me to, uh, you know, to be the serf of a machine? That sounds even worse than being the serf of a person. But it must be admitted that for some people at least, in fact, no, they would prefer to be enslaved to machines than enslaved by their fellow man, that it would be less injurious to their pride. Well, okay, you know, being a slave sucks, but at least I'm a slave to this computer instead of a slave to this person who's just like me, except they're in charge and they don't deserve to be in charge. Ah, right. Um, so this is something to be concerned about yeah. is how do you, you know, have things progressed to a point where people welcome slavery to machines for because just uh, exactly because there's no human master um, or at least none on stage. Right. And this is this is the real black pill is, you know, people who recognize that they that they ultimately do have human masters, but they're just like hiding behind a wall of machine enforcers. And I do think that there is a cultural strain emerging where people go, well, yeah, you know, like ultimately it's Bezos or whoever. I'm just grabbing his name out of a hat. Uh, or, you know, or or woke bureaucrats or, you know, there are people in there, but it's bearable because I just have to be a slave to this machine every day. Um, I think that's a real problem. And so how do you, how do you overcome it? I mean, I think, you know, I think ultimately you wage spiritual warfare and you have to go to people and you have to say like, this is not why you were put on this earth. And if you go down this road, you will only be hurting yourself and you'll only be disfiguring yourself and you'll know it. You, no matter how hard you try to, replace reality with an illusion, you will know what is real. And so Joey pants in the matrix eating the juicy steak and knowing that it was not real, but, but choosing it anyway, it's, it's not going to be that easy. We are, we are corrupted and jaded enough already to know that it's not that easy. And I think that this is something that can help save our souls. This, this horrible knowledge that, you know, that fantasies are not real and that they, 
they can't they can't trick us the way that they used to. Like this is what digital is doing. It is making it harder for us to suspend disbelief. And so so much technological effort is being dumped into creating these all-consuming virtual worlds that can trick the mind into accepting that this is like the good place. This is the place to be. It's not going to work. It's already not working. You know, I mean, this is like pornography. The way it's, it's produced right now is like the attempt is the dry run for onboarding everyone into a world where fantasy matters more than reality still. It did before the triumph of the bots. It's not going to again. People will do it. They'll know that it's not real. They'll, they'll accept the pain of that fact and they'll try to squeeze as much pleasure out of it as they can. And they'll start hitting a point of diminishing returns and they'll adopt, you know, more extreme forms of trying to squeeze more pleasure out of it. And, you know, they'll end up watching the sissy porn or whatever. And, and it won't work. And they know, like, we know this, like we need to learn, at least we can learn the lesson from what pornography is doing to us. What it is doing to us is it is scourging us, teaching us the hard way that fantasy will never again be more powerful and more pleasurable to us than reality. Yeah, it's um, it seems like, you know, this is kind of a, a bit of a hero's journey that every individual in our society at the moment has to undertake for himself because there's not really anyone blocking you from going down the path of your desires, you know, going buck wild, then hitting rock bottom, then, you know, kind of having a crisis of faith and then realizing that you're essentially an addict to, to your desires. Uh, and like you said, there, there are diminishing returns to, to, you know, satisfying whatever, you know, you like, whatever your, your poison is, you know, is it gaming, is it food? Um, you know, and, and I think that's probably the, the, the silver lining here is that it really satisfying your desire is really unsatisfying. It really is. It's it's essentially, you know, I've I've only had one serious addiction in my life, and I was I was a smoker for about two years, and it was very fun in the beginning, and then absolutely torturous at the end of it because, you know, I was only getting to baseline. I was just kind of, you know, getting my nicotine hit. I was feeling really shitty when I didn't have my cigarettes. I was feeling normal when I did, uh, and then essentially, this is this seems to me like this is a cycle of of the addict. Um, and I really do hope that people notice the cycle because this is this is it. I think the, the problem you have with, you know, with digital and porn and stuff like that is that it does ratchet up. It's like there is a new cigarette for you. You know, it's not the same old cigarette. There's quite a new one. There's this one has free free boobs or whatever, whatever is new and trendy now. Um, but it, it, you know, it does feel like that this this might be a way out. You know, pe- people, like you said, they notice uh, it's it's not. It's not as good as it's sold. Well, it's not. And this is where, you know, this is why Rene Girard is, has any presence in our cultural firmament at all right now is because what does Girard tell us? It tells, he tells us that like, Hey, you know, bad news, like your desires are not yours. They're not your identity. They're not identical to you. They don't come from you. They come from other people and they are aroused by your encounter with other people and there's no escape from this. I mean, this is also like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. You know, this is this is Rousseau's account of leaving the state of nature is people start comparing each other 
to each other and desires are aroused by these comparisons. Um, this is primal stuff. You know, there, I'm sure there are plenty of, of Bible verses that we can cite in this regard if we had more time. Uh, but yeah, the, the injury to your pride of discovering that your desires are not your own. And in fact, they're coming from other people. This is, this is a painful experience and people try to ameliorate their pain, not just by going for ever stronger hits of pleasure, but by seeking out ever more overpowering illusions that reinforce the fantasy that their desires are their own. Um, this is terribly destructive and it's something that has fueled the entertainment industry such as it is for a long time. Um, and again, you know, like the Wokies in their devotion to their religion and in their being formed by digital conditions are kind of first past the post in some regards of saying like, hey, you know, this complex of desires that you think belongs to you is actually just a fabrication that's been handed down to you by people who, you know, do not do not want to save your soul. Uh that, that insight is not the problem, right? That insight is a powerful one and it is part of their inherited Christian categories of thought. Um, they take it in a bad direction, but you know, people who want to like have, uh, have a rival, a successful rival to wokeness need to recognize that they've got to start thinking in, in that, at least in the West, at least in the, you know, post post Christendom West, in, in Christian categories about desire and about, you know, sin and about how to save the soul from, uh, from chewing itself up out of wounded pride. Mm, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's going to be an, an, an interesting challenge to see what, what pops up. And especially, especially on the right, because um, the what we have now is is just wholly insufficient, um, and it's just not, you know, it's we we've got the shit posting, we've got the humor, we've got all that stuff, but it's it's just not a coherent worldview, and it just doesn't appeal yet to you know the the critical mass needed. Um, but before uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you the the show question which is, um, do you have a, a subversive thinker or writer or someone who you'd recommend that people check out that you think, you know, it's, it's not getting enough of the spotlight, you know, that, that would, would blow people's minds if they, if they would uh, come in contact with their ideas? Um, I will recommend a very short book by Norbert Wiener, um, who was the, he was a child prodigy uh, roughly uh, contemporaries with Leo Strauss, um, also Jewish, um, also a genius, uh, but a mathematician and um, a scientist in, in the true style and the, uh, the inventor of the concept of cybernetics, uh, which, um, which in his mind was uh, the, the science of uh, using communications to control uh, machines or humans, uh, coming from the the ancient Greek word for the helmsman of the ship, uh, the the cybernaut, or the the Kubernetes, I think is the correct 
uh, pronunciation. Um, and Wiener wrote a little book called in, I think, 1964. Uh, he died shortly thereafter, um, called uh, God and Gollum Incorporated. And this little book is an inquiry into the overlap between um, technology and religion uh, and how technology and religion um, uh, circle around some of the same fundamental questions about who we are and why we should bother being who we are. Um, and uh, chapter five is, is the one to read. Um, <laughs> chapter four is very heavy into like electrical engineering. Um, it may not be for listeners of this podcast. I know that I had to labor through it myself, um, but uh, very subversive when it comes to undermining expectations about what awaits when we offload all of our work to our machine slaves. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, Nor Norbert Wiener. Yes. God and Gollum Incorporated. Okay, perfect. Um, in terms of other work that you're doing, I remember I was listening to a podcast with you and you were saying that you might be working on something that ties into the, the theme of technology and kind of what, uh, what, may, what may come of it. Uh, is, is there something you're, you're working on now or is there kind of some, some project that you want to you tell people about? Uh, working, on, working on a few things. Um, what I can say is that uh, if you are wondering how you can contribute to a, uh, a better understanding or a better movement uh, toward human flourishing and human vitality in a digital age, uh, and you want to use your skills uh, to further your own interest in this regard, uh, talk to me. There are things going on that you'll want to know about. Okay, good. You're you're the hub for for the new, the new change. I I don't know what it's going to be, but it sounds pretty exciting. <laughs> I think so too. Perfect. Thank you so much for for coming on, James. It was a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Alex. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it. And maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you. <laughs>